Listening to Radio One Berlin, and our guest today has been described as the godfather of British performance poetry, the people's poet, and a thorn in the side of the British establishment since year zero. The one, the only, John Cooper Clark. Or should I say Doctor? Doctor. Doctor Who? Doctor John Cooper Clark, that's who. Thanks for taking the time during your tour here in volcanically hot Berlin, John. And you're currently touring with your latest long-awaited book, The Luckiest Guy Alive. Uh-huh. Any reason for the name, The Luckiest Guy Alive? Well, it's uh, self-explanatory. Self-explanatory. There's no uh, hidden agenda there. I feel myself to be the luckiest guy alive. I can't prove this. There's even haikus in there as well. Yeah, there's uh, six of them in no particular order. <laughs> Yep. I like the difficult one. Yeah, I like that one. That's the one that got me started. That's haiku number one. We better give it them now we've talked it up. Oh, Won't take long, 17 syllables, 17 <laughs> seconds. This is haiku number one, the one that got me started on the whole haiku business in the first place. I've uh, taken great care to get this right. A haiku is a three-line poem invented in Japan in the 17th century by a guy called Basho. He wrote for the Floating World School. And uh, it's a poem, as I say, three lines, 17 syllables. First line, five, second line, seven, third line, five. No deviation. There's no Japanese translation for the term close enough. I had to think very hard about this one. (laughs) Haiku number one. To freeze the moment in 17 syllables is very difficult. But I didn't let that difficulty put me off. Here's another one, right on the back of it. Haiku number five, I think. It's in the book. Haiku number five. The way to relax. Don't lift anything heavy. And try to keep still. Count them, 17. One, two, three. Yeah. How do they come to you, these haikus? Well, you know, the writing of any kind of poetry, for me, involves a kind of magic Mm. that I don't really want to interfere with by uh, analysis, in a way. I'm too close, I can't really know uh, really how the magic works. It's a common superstition among artists of all kinds, isn't it? To trust. Uh, It's a kind of uh, intuitive... uh, Um, area of the brain that uh, comes up with uh, this stuff. But like anything else, like any other uh, organic process, it it quickly dies within you. I think everybody in the world uh, actually has has written a poem. Not everybody in the world has taken dancing lessons. Not everybody in the world can play a musical instrument. Not anybody in the world would paint a, a, a convincing portrait of somebody. But everybody's give, had a go at writing poetry. What's to stop anybody? I mean, your language is, is the, it's the stuff of our everyday life. So to corral that language uh, into, a, into a poetic form is the next step, really, isn't it? To play around with language. 
Ernest Hemingway said that all sport aspires to boxing. Well, I would say that all art aspires to poetry. In that, you know, if you if you you take a work of art, a piece of music, a painting, uh, a movie, a radio program, if it haunts you uh, through life, if it has some kind of staying power with you, if you keep coming back to it time and time again, then you would say that that work of art had a poetic quality, and uh, so therefore I say that all art aspires to poetry. But poetry ain't a kind of natural occurrence, and as I say, it very quickly dies within you, you know what I mean? It atrophies. Ah. So it has to be kept you, you alive. Know, so you, you have to, you can lose it. I've, I found this out. You can lose it. So it's uh, it's just something, that if, you, if you've got any intentions of being a professional poet, which I always did have since the age of 13, to somehow make a living out of this thing. I realised I had a gift, thanks to an inspiring English teacher at the time. I realised I had a gift. It was a gift that I sharpened into a skill, to the point where that skill was broadcast quality and uh, worthy of becoming a profession. Mm. But as I say, you know, uh, this process doesn't take place without some initial effort, you know, to keep this this knack, Mm. you know, because let's face it, most people just think it's a waste of time. And uh, your biggest friend, if you're a poet, really, is idleness. (laughs) Idleness, Mm. indolence. And how, how do you deal with that then? Indolence is a very difficult quality to uh, to call up. There's always something to do. You're a married guy. You've got a kid. Oh, I'm not sure There's about marriage. There's always something to do. <laughs> yeah. There's always something to do. If you're a family guy. Family guy, indeed. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> There's always something better to do than write a poem, even if you're on your own. Actually, you work avoidance is uh, it's a big mistake slaving over a blank sheet of paper you gotta know when to walk away and take the you know what i mean take your foot off the inspiration accelerator do you know what i mean and let the, it's a very like i say it's a very flaky here i i said i wouldn't analyze it and here i am kind of <laughs> analyzing but i'm analyzing the mo yeah do you know what i mean mm. see i never step out without a notebook and a pen you know, why? Because I'm a professional poet. Mm. Ah. That very rare thing, mm. a professional poet. When I expressed a desire to become a professional poet as a, as a 13-year-old child, I was discouraged at every turn, you know. I, I would, they would say nobody ever made a living out of poetry, mm. you know, even if it's good. I said, well, so I mentioned a few modern poets, you know, uh, Philip Larkin, he, he was a librarian. Everybody I mentioned had a job in a university or some kind of generous stipend from somewhere or other, you know what I mean? They had some kind of other... You know, poetry was not their engine of wealth. Mm. Whereas I I thought it it could be that. I was very taken in my early enthusiasm for poetry. I was taken with the work of uh, Charles Baudelaire, Uh in translation, obviously. And uh, 
I read about his life, you know, and he was the only person I could point to that started out with money. <laughs> and, it, and it kind of, the funds ran out, you know what I mean? It, it, but he never did anything other than uh, write, uh, particularly poetry. There's a Pam Ayres connection. Yeah, Pam well. Ayres also. I could point at Pam Ayres. Yes, good point. While I was being discouraged from uh, pursuing this uh, course of, uh, you know, becoming a professional poet, you know, while I was being discouraged from it by uh, friends and enemies alike, even my parents, <laughs> especially my parents, they won't be able to get a proper job like all parents do. But, um, yeah. Opportunity knocks. Yeah, the opportunity knocks, right, yeah. We used to watch that avidly. Uh, at the time, we only, there were only three TV channels in England, so uh, it had uh, millions of viewers, you know, opportunity knocks. A, a talent show uh, run by a guy called Huey Green, a Canadian called Huey Green. And uh, the viewers would vote, would send, you know, postal votes. And uh, she won every every week for uh, for about a year. So there was somebody with a degree of success that I could kind of take some encouragement from. And I would say, to them, and, and they would say, yeah, but she writes nice stuff about nice things, you know. And, and I'd say, yeah, well, that's because she lives in a nice place, you know. She, <laughs> she 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 writes about her world. I write about mine. You know, I couldn't see any difference between me and Pam Ayers. I yep. mean, obviously, I use more bad language than Pam does. But that's all about upbringing and what have you. Mm. But the point is, she writes about accurately about her world in the, in, in the form of poetry, just as I write accurately about my world in the, by, by means of poetry. So we have more in common than anything, mm. you know. I've never met Pam, but I'd really, uh, I'd really like that to happen. What a double act that would be. I think be. it'd be great. You know, I've been trying to get Radio 4 to do this, uh, BBC Radio 4, but they seem to think uh, it's, it, it, it's about... Everybody, everybody I've said that to has reacted the same as you, Adrian. Mm. Uh, that would be a great, uh, a great dub, a double. And I couldn't agree more, but the BBC don't agree with you, uh, apparently. We shall see. We shall see. Maybe after they listen to this programme, then... Uh... We'd never run out of conversation, Pam and I, you know what I mean? It was, it, we, if, if nothing else, we could talk about technique. Yep. You know, until the cows come on. Yeah. Could be an after-dark show. That's oh, endless. Great. Open-ended. Yep. Yeah, yeah. Yep. So from Pam Ayres... <laughs> oh, yeah, maybe another thing that could be recreated could be the Honey Monster advert. Oh, yeah, think. that was... Oh, wow, that happened... At, uh, that was a big earner. That was a that was a mega earner back then. These days, you know, if you do a commercial, they got what they call a buyout. They, uh, you know, you get a big flat fee, and that's it, really. Oh, and that, that's what happened with back then. Back then, no, you got a massive flat fee. Yeah. You got you got treated like a goddamn king, because they they took days and days to produce back then. This is pre CGI. You know, mm. this is the eighties pre pre-blue screen, everything had to be mocked up. And we had the guy, the guy that directed those adverts was a fellow called Willie, Willie Smacks. And he did the, uh, that video for George Harrison, Got My Mind Set On You, you know, in the 80s. Oh, yeah. You know, when all the furniture mm. starts dancing uh -huh. around the room. It's a really good video. <laughs> Check it out, 1988. I, I remember Harrison, it, I remember. Got My Mind Set On You, mm. video, promotional videos at Ace. And he's the guy that did them, Willie Smacks. 
So I get flattened by a garden roller and all sorts of like real Tom and Jerry shit happens to me, you know what I mean? They were great, really great ads. But how did really you get fabulous. it in the first place? Well, the, the two people that worked at the two young people, are a young couple actually, but and they both very romantic. They were a young married couple, and they both worked at the same advertising company. Uh, I don't, I'm not sure whether they exist anymore. They were called Young and Ruby Camp, and they were a very successful high rolling ad, ad firm in uh, in Camden, and uh, yeah, they were fans. You know, they'd been punk rockers and. Uh, and they were fans of, uh, of my stuff. So the, the whole schmear was their thing, ah. you know. And, uh, <laughs> yeah, it was great. We did three or four of them. And oh. they got more and more expensive each time. Quakers said they couldn't make enough... Uh, was it... Yeah, Quakers. We can't make enough sugar puffs to mm. meet the demand... Well, amazing. ...on the English market. Yeah, yeah, it was a real big success. Won awards, sold loads of sugar puffs, got me loads of money. <laughs> sensational. Because, like I was saying, back then, you didn't have a buyout. You got a massive uh, advance. And then they took four days to make, so you got, like, a grand a day. Back in 88, that ain't nothing, you know. So you got four grand on top of your massive flat fee. And then you get repeat fees every time it's shown. Mm. Every, every time it's aired, you get 700 quid repeat fee. I tell you, man, guilt, it was coming out of my ears. <laughs> coming out of my ears. Unfortunately, I had a drug habit at the time, which sort of spoke for uh, all of it. Uh, um, it was nothing to do with breakfast cereal? No, no. But it was the beginning? But, you know, it's... Uh, funnily enough, it's... Uh, it's probably the junkie's staple diet. Sugar puffs. <laughs> Easy to prepare. <laughs> and full of, uh, you know, energy-giving sugar. Goodness. Clues in the title. Sugar puffs. <laughs> Pure um, energy in a box. John, the first time I saw you perform uh, was at the Pink Rooms in Loughborough. Were you going to be a PE teacher then? Uh, isn't that where they train PE teachers at Loughborough? Don't they have a sort question. of physical there's education? A, there's a university there. there. I wasn't at university. I was, um, I was programming computers, would oh, you believe? Right. Well, I tell you, he's the head of poetry at that university, huh? Roger McGough. No way. Yeah, yeah, he has been for centuries. Mm. Yeah, yeah, that's his... Uh, is it a, a seat? The seat of poetry at <laughs> Loughborough University. But they train football referees there and... Athletes. There's a big sport that, thing, yeah, isn't there? It's got a sporting on. bias, yes. the university, yeah. Yeah, so I saw you uh, perform in the Pink Rooms, as I say in Where, where at? It was, it was called the Pink Rooms, I think. What, a club? Yeah. Was I on my own or was, was uh, I with somebody? My uh, memory is so bad. What year, I think maybe ish, Michelle Shocked played. Oh, blimey, that's what, eight Same early time. 80s? So it was early, early 80s. 80s. I was about 25, so it's about 360 years ago. Yeah, I remember her, and I think the le- next day, if memory serves me well, I lost my virginity, John. Oh, hey, that's well, blimey, you should remember that day. I know, I should. Uh, oh, you I'm should not, be able I... to put a, a time on it. <laughs> exactly. Also, it's a big event. It was, it was it's morning. A big event. Yeah, I think I went to Leicester the next Deflowered. day. Deflowered. Your deflowerment. <laughs> you don't remember the, day and, the date and time of your own deflowerment. It's all coming back to me now, I think. 
But that was the effect, maybe, your machine gun poetry had on Really? What Did it have an erogenous effect on the the woman that you were with? I think the whole crowd... Everyone yeah, was there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The birth rate went yeah, up. Got, yeah, yeah. That, 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 you wouldn't be the first to say that. <laughs> <laughs> um, and recently, I was listening again to John Peel's "Festive 50 from 1977, and at number five, John Cooper Clark with "Suspended Sentence." Oh, yeah, cycle sort of suspended sentence. Fantastic. Yeah. And that kind of brings us around to, because uh, you performed with the Sex Pistols, didn't you? Joy Division, The Fall. The Clash, The Fall. All, Buzz of, the, all the big hitters. Banshees, yeah. Yeah. And those days, those punk days, hence the punk poet that's been bestowed Yeah, well, that you. was very good for me to get involved with punk rock. But I was working, uh, I was doing live readings before the punk rock craze. Yeah, you were on a... Uh, cabaret joints in Manchester there were loads of them but mm. I had a residency at a place called Mr Smith's which was I, I was earning a wage from just doing 20 minutes at Mr Smith's you mm. know so it wasn't like I was new to the game but the point is the reason I got into punk you know one of the reasons was um, I lived quite close to uh, a guy called Howard Devoto who was the original singer with the Buzzcocks and they they actually put that first Sex Pistols they were instrumental in putting that first Sex Pistols show in at the Lesser Free Trade Hall. Ah. And the, the bill was the, the, the Sex Pistols, the Buzzcocks and Slaughter and the Dogs. A terrific introduction to the very diverse nature of punk rock as it was then, you know. It quickly became very... It really only lasted for two years. After that, it became formulaic and political. Ah. You know what I mean? But in that glorious two years when, you know, it was a really... Uh, quite a broad church, you know, If you you couldn't get three more different bands than the Sex Pistols, <laughs> the Buzzcocks and Slaughter and the Dogs. They were all coming up punk rock from a completely different angle, you know, the Sex Pistols at that time hadn't written many songs, so they used to keep doing Substitute, They did, or they did a song with the same chord, chordage uh-huh. as Substitute, because obviously because Steve Jones is a massive fan of The Who. And he's from Shepherd's Bush, mm. so it's kind of quite patriotic about the Who. So every other number was sort of substitute. So they were coming from that sort of uh, Shepherd's Bush, sort of moddy kind of mm. uh, power pop sort of, you know, thing. The bu- And the Buzzcocks were kind of, uh, again, a bit moddy, you know, but, you know, pink jeans and, uh, mm. you know, very a lot softer than, uh, you know, buzzsaw guitars, but you know, sort of a little bit more, I don't know what the word would be, nuanced, perhaps. And uh, Slaughter and the Dogs were kind of straight up uh, glam. You know, they were like, uh, David Bowie uh, was their main guy, it was obvious, you know. And and if you ask Mick Rossi, he wouldn't deny it. In fact, fact, Mick Ronson gave Mick Rossi, the the guitarist with the uh, Slaughter and the Dogs, if I'm not mistaken, he gave... uh, because he was such a fan, Mick Rossi, that Rono gave him a, a white uh, Les Paul. Amazing. Gibson Les Paul, yeah. I'm sure that's not just a, pr- a product of my fevered imagination. <laughs> I'm sure that happened. We can check it. You were also quoted as saying UK punk got politicised and became rubbish very quickly. Yeah, that's what I was... I just covered that there, yeah, when mm. it became sort of formulaic and, mm. you know... Uh, I'm not going to name names, you know, but 
it became very kind of uh, narrow very quickly mm. you know obviously as things didn't get around the provinces as quickly as they do now mm. you know people get onto things instantly now within a second of somebody thinking it up but back then you know it had to get on telly in the regions well I was lucky I lived in Manchester and we had Tony Wilson a very go-ahead presenter on a tea time program called Granada Reports and he was a very sort of, he was just the right age for, to be captivated by punk rock. But you look at uh, all those bands in the first two years, they were all so very different from each other, you know, they didn't all have Mohicans mm. and, uh, you know, there was no uniform. Mm. The only rule was no flares oh, yeah. <laughs> and no beards. <laughs> that, was, that was the two rules, that's it. After that, you know, whatever you want, really, literally. Mm. So I, I sort of fitted in, what I was saying was, I fitted in with that look because I was doing cabaret joints. Huh. I didn't look like a hippie, you know, as most people did in late 1975, you know, most people look like hippies. But I didn't, I was trying to make it in this adult world of cabaret, uh, slick cabaret entertainer, gags, monologues, poems, all with a kind of local slant. But I was wearing like a mohair suit, you know, an Ivy League mohair suit, loafers, short hair. <laughs> button-down shirts, you know what I mean? And it's hard to imagine now, but people would actually look at me twice in the street and I couldn't have looked more normal. <laughs> That's the way things were then. But, but when punk happened, it all made sense. You know, I had short hair, narrow trousers, mm. you know, narrow lapels, no beard. You know, so Howard sort of said, you know, you shouldn't be messing around in it. You know, uh, your stuff's too good for this crowd and all this. You know, well, everybody likes a bit of flattery, don't they? You know, and, and I, anyway, I'd noticed Howard around, you know, he was a very striking looking individual. And his girlfriend was Linda, who did all the uh, graphics for the Buzzcocks. Ah. Very, very good. And I'd noticed her around. She looked like Susie Sue before the event, but like 18 months before anybody, before the term punk had happened. I'd seen his girlfriend around, Linda. She, she was an art student at Manchester Art, art College. And she had the black lipstick, the, the, the PVC mini dress and, and all of that. The, the whole schmear, you know, 18 months early. And uh, she really talented woman. A big mate of Mozart's. Big mate of Morris's. Yeah, and so I'd noticed her and Howard, and I thought, you know, it didn't have a name then, but I just thought, yeah, they look, oh, they look good. Huh. Uh, I just put them down as, you know, boho art college kids, you know. Mm. Maybe she's some sort of fashion st student or, you know, mm. extremist. She was like kind of Mary Quant, but really more monochrome mm. even than Mary Quant. Mm. You know, <laughs> fish belly white face, dark plum lipstick, charcoal grey eyeshadow, you know what I mean, black hair, very very striking looking woman. So I was interested in that world, you know, I'm, I'm always, I'm a real style over content kind of guy, so just from the look of it I, I wanted to get involved, you know. And I said, so I'd be okay in, in these clothes? He said, sure, yeah, this, that's a kind of punk look, you know, they, they take a lot from, you know, mod. Which is what I look like, I look like a monk, you know. Which is all I've ever been, really, to be honest. It's oh. the only new tribe I've ever kind of been an enthusiastic part of, you know, back when I was, uh, back in the 60s. And really, 
Unlike all other U tribes, really, mod. You can wear that stuff when you're 80 years old. Mm. You know, mm. it's just neat, isn't it? Neat. That's perfect for the next set of questions. The stationary questions. Okay. Uh, you don't have to be still or anything for these, but uh, do you have a, a favourite pen, for example? Yeah, Parker. Parker, yeah. Yeah, I Talking yeah. about mods. Yeah, I, it's upstairs, but I, yes, a Parker. I believe you. I've come out without a pen. We'll find it. It's terrible. Parker. Do you have a preferred or favourite paper size? Uh, I used to know all the paper sizes <laughs> because I was a printer in the days of letter oh. type. Oh, well. So I used to, uh, but I can't remember what they are now. I suppose A4. Fool's cap. <laughs> is that A4? What is that in A sizes? Uh. Yeah, about that. Yeah. Renus is uh, yeah, pointing out A4. Yeah, exact sizes here. Uh, when I was a kid, I used to eat paper and loved the smell of books. Do you have any smell preference? Yeah, I also love the smell of art paper. Mm. You know, uh, it's uh, and what it is you can smell is uh, china clay. That's what it is. Yeah, that's what you can. Is that what your what book here, the luckiest guy alive, smells like? Because there is a no, particular it's not smell got any art to paper it. involved with it. No, it's the very art paper is the very glossy, oh, yeah. hyper glossy. Oh. What does your you book smell I mean? like then? Do you think? Any memories it brings up? No Proustian uh, <laughs> recollections uh, present themselves uh, at this point. Okay, that's stationary questions done. Time travel questions. Uh, if you could go back to any date in history, where would you go? Um, any date in history? Today is the 19th. Well, as long as I could take my family with me, uh, 1965. Ah, that's like three years before I was born. Uh, two years. What happened in 65 then? Well, you know, everything was like getting better and there was no reason to believe that it wouldn't continue to ah. improve, you know, indefinitely. It was a very, you know, was, uh, clothes became uh, nicer. Mm. People started looking better. Mm. More working class people could buy cars and things like that. And just the general standard of living uh, went through the roof, really, mm. in, that, in that year, yeah. Yeah, I still think of 64 as, you know, quite monochrome in a way, you know. But 65 was uh, really a mint year. I always think of it, it you know, the past is, a, is another country, obviously, you know. Mm. And uh, I was probably, uh, like all teenagers, I probably didn't appreciate it. I probably thought I had problems. <laughs> <laughs> That's what teenagers do. Don't you? you think you've got problems. Yeah. If you could bring one cassette back with you, cassette. Yeah, I've just done this. I've done just done Desert Island Disc, so all this is fresh in my oh, mind. Oh, fantastic! One cassette off the top of my. I'm not even going to think about this. Okay. Yep. I'm not even going to think about this. It, it would be uh, uh, Elvis for LP fans only. The first is the first RCA album. Do you have any cassettes? Yeah, I've got that. Oh. Yeah, I've got loads of cassettes. Oh. In fact, that's most of most of the music I play at home is because via a cassette. I've got a I've got a ghetto blaster in every room. <laughs> it's the nearest thing to vinyl you can get. It's still got that kind of Dolby crackle underneath yeah. uh, underneath the music, which I really like. They, they never die, do they? 
Oh, it's been rec- it's being recorded so, uh, now. So top say. of my head, Elvis Elvis apart because Elvis is always going to come out on top. El- Elvis apart, uh, Dion and the Belmonts reunion concert, nineteen seventy two, Madison Square Garden. Making notes now. Uh, how did your poems appear on the national curriculum? I mean, nothing like- to do with me. Uh, the uh, well, the uh, education authorities of uh, Great Britain uh, made it happen. Uh, is how I suppose. I don't know how. Mm. Why? But all school children now study your I know poems. why, but I don't know how. I know why, because mm. it's the sort of... Uh, yeah, all the kids in Britain, yeah, they were all reading... I was, yeah, getting rammed down... My, my poetry getting rammed down the reluctant throats of school children on a daily basis. That feels good, man. Finally, I can make people miserable and there's nothing they can do about it. <laughs> What about your own uh, your own kids? So they, 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 does your your own uh, child listen to your stuff or read? Yeah, your, she's your a poetry? big fan. Yeah, she she loves my poetry, Fantastic. but she she hadn't really known about it uh, until later life. You know, uh, she she didn't come. You know, when she was a baby. I mean, I used to I used to I would have nightmares about seeing my daughter in the audience of my shows. <laughs> Because as you as you would imagine, you know my shows are uh, it's quite a lot of adult content. Mm. <laughs> I always say this to people in the whenever I do daytime shows, which isn't very often, but you know in the festival season, occasionally I find myself doing shows in the afternoon, and I'm always very careful. I've never forgotten this nightmare scenario, so I'm always very careful to uh, inform anybody that's got a child with them mm. that uh, my stuff isn't really suitable for them. <laughs> and, if you're, and if you're any kind of parent at all, you will uh, take them out. I'll give you five minutes. <laughs> I'll, I'll give you five minutes of clean stuff after then. After that, the gloves come off. <laughs> so get that kid out of here. Get that kid out of here. We've got I feel a- very strongly about it, seriously. Mm. There is a lot of that kids shouldn't hear in my Acts in my acts. I'm not saying about my poetry. You know, read mm. it and make your own mind up. But my act is quite adult. Mm. What age uh, would you say? What age restrictions? Oh, would 18. You say? Yeah. Voting age. Mm. You're old enough to join the army. You're old enough to listen to my profane <laughs> poetry. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I've made a living out of profane language more than Lenny Bruce and the entire British armed forces combined. <laughs> uh, so we have some fan questions now, but maybe it's possible to read another one of your pieces. You want another? But well, here's the title track. My book is called "The Luckiest Guy Alive." This is the titular track, the eponymous track. I guess what I'm trying to say is the title of this poem is the same as the title of the book. And the title is, The Luckiest Guy Alive. Nothing matters and what if it did? There's more than one way to make a quid. You'll be farting through silk if you stick with me, kid. I'm the luckiest guy alive. Life is one big happy skive. The luckiest guy alive. I'm just waiting for the trouble to arrive. On the fairway, I'm under par. At the boat club, they call me the commissar. With a monogram tanker to hanging in the bar. I'm the luckiest guy alive. I got a kick-ass drag boat I ain't allowed to drive. The luckiest guy alive, just waiting for the trouble to arrive. A broad daylight killing spree. I heard about it on the BBC. 
Expert opinion tends to agree stranger things apparently happen at sea anyway, don't worry about me. I'm the luckiest guy alive. A better situation you could only connive. The luckiest guy alive, just waiting for the trouble to arrive. Time was it was the whole of the law that kept my feet on the literal floor, but gravity ain't my friend no more. Oh no, that's for sure. But I'm the luckiest guy alive. I got a facial tattoo saying, please revive. The luckiest guy alive. Just waiting for the trouble to arrive. Fantastic. The luckiest guy alive. So, we have some fan questions. Great. Do your poems have their own life? Yes, they do. That's a very intelligent question. Yes, they do. I, uh, I bring them into being, and after that, it's uh, what you know. What they're uh, what they're uh, all about is, is is anybody's business. Anybody's business. I mean, my poems ain't like you know. That's the way it is. There's a lot. I mean, I can explain every line. I don't ever write nothing just for effect. It always drives the the fractured narrative of the poem, right? You know. So that's a that's a, a very uh, intelligent question. Yes, they do live. They live. They live in other people. Mm. Um, your earliest memory. Um, First one that comes to mind. Oh well, that's impossible to for a person of my age. <laughs> your last dream. My uh, I can tell you my last uh, good dream. Uh, but nobody's interested. Nobody's interested in anybody's dreams or what. <laughs> Or their children. Ah, oh, other good. people's kids and other people's dreams are not interested. However, I did have one where I, uh, and it, I'm bringing Dion, uh, uh, the aforereferenced Dion Francis de Mucci into the equation here. I uh, had a dream that I, uh, I was in Nottingham and for some reason I entered this miner's cottage. Uh, around the time, set around the time of D.H. Lawrence, you know, so mm. there was some guy spitting tubercular sputum into the fire, into the open fire, as his wife made some unspeakable, awful, based meal. And there sat amongst them all was none other than uh, Dion. Wow. In, in, this, in a fabulous uh, continental suit there, looking totally out of place. And I'm like, what are you doing in here? You're going to get your clothes dirty. He's, and he said, this gentleman, he said to me, this gentleman's putting me on at the local uh, uh, social club, miners <laughs> social club. And I'm like, fuck that, Dion. I can do better than that. And I became his manager. But for, I said, I'll be in touch. And then the next scene, I'm in a Catholic church. And I'm there talking to his mother, you know, I want to talk to his mother before I talk to Dion, right, because I want to manage him. So I want his mother to be happy and secure that uh, I'm taking, I've got her boy's best interests at heart. Mm. Mm. So then, so shift the scene, we're going out of mass, you know, we both, you know, cross ourselves, genuinely we're going to leave the church after mass. Uh, Dion goes home. I, I, next thing, I'm on top of the Chrysler building with Mrs. Dimucci, who's who, by the way, might still be alive. Last time I checked, she was, which, which was about two years ago. Last time I checked, she was 103 years old. <laughs> so uh, there I was on top of the um, on top of the Chrysler building, 
climbing up a step ladder. She's climbing up that side of the step ladder. I'm climbing up this side. I'm holding a conversation with Mrs. Demucci. Believe me, Mrs. Demucci, you wouldn't get a bigger, a bigger fan of your boy than me. You wouldn't ever find. I, I will make it my business to take care of him. You know, and she's like, you know, I believe you. You know what I mean? And all we have this meaningful conversation. And then I said, I've got just the thing that's going to get him right back. You're going to put him right back at the top where he belongs. And uh, what it was, was where I live in Essex. I live near Essex University. And they've got uh, a large block of flats there, a skyscraper block of flats. I had this penthouse suite up there. And, I, and I'm talking to Dion, I'm saying, and I'm pointing down below, there's all these teen, teenage girls. And down, we're looking through a pair of binoculars each. And it's starting, and down below, they're opening this new pool for the kids, for the students. And this is the grand opening. And uh, you're going to be, uh, you know, the main attraction, Dion, for the main opening of this new teenage pool at Essex University. And we were looking down there and it suddenly it all morphed into one of those beach movies with Annette Funicello and Frankie Avalon, you know, America, American International Pictures. They did about 88 of these surf movies, you know, a beach blanket bingo, a muscle beach party, all starring among others. Various members of the Sergeant Bilko cast. Amazing. Actually, Joey Ross and people like that, you know. Really good comedians. They were great movies, check them out. American International Pictures. And uh, they'd have people like Dick Dale and the Deltones, <laughs> and, you know, real surfy movies. But they always, the one linking factor was the boy-girl uh, combo of uh, the lovely Annette Funicello mm. and... Uh, uh, Frankie Avalon. <laughs> so here I was, you know. So so he knew where I was coming from, Dion, and uh, that's where. Anyway, that's where it ended. That was the dream. You know? Yeah, that was the. He asked me what the dream was, Johnny. I told him. Nobody's <laughs> interested. Nobody's interested. I think Okay. Yeah, a couple of fan questions. Come on. Oh yeah, there's a couple of fan questions. Simon Wade from London would love to know how the Invisible Girls sessions were put together. That was with Martin Hannett, I believe. Yeah. What, how were they put together? Mm. Nothing to do with me. It wasn't my idea to put music with them. I'd just got a record deal. Mm. The way they sold it to me, it seemed like a good idea at the time. But whenever I hear myself with music, with a couple of exceptions, few exceptions actually, I'm being hard on myself. Uh, Des with a few exceptions, <laughs> it never works. I'll tell you when poetry and music work. When poetry and music go well together, mm. It's called a song. <laughs> I'll never forget that. <laughs> never forget that. Des from Tragic Roundabout asks, why aren't you fat yet? Why aren't I fat yet? You know, that's, a, that's an, also an intelligent question. Uh, that The entire uh, nutritional community are scratching their heads on this one. <laughs> I, uh, I, I eat a lot. I eat the wrong things. I'm a great lover of pies, <laughs> uh, for instance. In fact, there's a poem in this book, The Luckiest Guy Alive. It's called Pies. It's about pies. <laughs> so, uh, so search one. me, Buster. I don't, I don't know. <laughs> I was tubercular as a child. I, maybe that's got something yeah. to do with it. So finally, uh, last question. My four-year-old child, daughter Maya, asks if you have any poems with unicorns and do you do bedtime stories? With unicorns? Yeah. No, I don't have any unicorn. Uh, 
poems, I'm afraid. Bedtime stories. Yeah, I, if you want to stay awake all night. <laughs> <laughs> I, I can see you on CBeebies, John, doing, doing your stuff. Well, finally, a poem to end. A poem to end. Let's have uh, your metrosexual ex. I think metrosexuals are a kind of international phenomenon. But uh, if they're not, then they certainly have a place in uh, Berlin. Good. No, I'll tell you what, instead of metrosexual X, I ain't been here for a while, I'm going to do a classic. Here's a classic. Lucky. Hire car. Right? These are the social advantages inherent in the rented vehicle as itemised here under. Double park, don't lock the door, push the pedal through the floor, give it loads and then some more, it's a higher car, baby. Grip the stick, grind the gears, watch that distance disappear, never be yours in a thousand years. It's a higher car, baby. Higher car, higher car, why would anybody buy a car? Bang it, prang it, say ta-ta. It's a higher car, baby, bad behaviour on the street. Save yourself a couple of sheets, collision waiver, keep it sweet. It's a higher car, show this motor no respect. Bump it, dump it, call collect. What else did the firm expect? It's a higher car, baby. Higher car, higher car. Why hot wire a car whenever you require a car? Hire a car, baby. Drive the motherfucker anywhere, just like you don't care. Put it down where and tear. It's a higher car, baby. Higher car, higher car, steaming like a samovar from the front bumper to the spoiler bar. Higher car, baby, try not to kill yourself or injure anybody else. Don't forget to fasten your belts. Rent it, dent it, bang it, prang it, bump it, dump it, scorch it, torch it, crash and burn it, don't return it, lost deposit, let them earn it. Who cares, it's on the firm, it's a higher car, baby. <laughs> yeah. Good one, <laughs> Infinite thanks, John Thank Cooper-Clark, for Thank coming you. in today on Radio on Berlin. John performs tomorrow at Fest Saal Kreuzberg, and his book, The Luckiest Guy Alive, published by Picador, is now available worldwide. At now. Now, galactically even. More info on uh, John Cooper-Clark, johncooperclark.com. We are out of here. This program was presented by myself, Adrian Shepard, produced by Rinas van Alabik and is a Radio On production. Thank you for listening. Radio On.